What is up, listeners? Welcome back to the number one e-commerce podcast on the planet, Modern Commerce. What's up, guys? How are you guys doing today? Hello, hello. Hey, hey. As always, I'm joined by Doug Barnett and Brent Choate, co-founders at Remy Labs. I'm Roger Emmer. Dude, I thought you were going to surprise us with a new intro song there after some of those Just sound got some new sound effects. Hey, you might be reading my mind. It's not ready to reveal yet, okay. though, so <laughs> maybe one day. Big day, though, guys. Big week. Episode 10. We've made it 10 episodes. We did it. It's 10 weeks. I'd love to say that we made these big grand goals with the podcast, but really it's like, oh, we did another one. Sometimes you just have to get started, I think, you know? That's the way to go. And that's how we actually started. One time, Brent and I were talking about it on the couch, and then the next day we recorded a podcast. Yeah, I was on vacation. You guys didn't even talk to me about it. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Doug, Doug came back and we're like, hey, we have a podcast. You want to be on it? He's like, cool. Sounds good. Yep. 10 episodes. I think that's a lesson to uh, brand owners out there. You just got to get put yourself out there. We've had some unexpected wins with the podcast for sure. And we're having a lot of fun with it. More importantly, it's helping us think better about our business and how we can help our customers. So I'm excited to get into this episode today. You know, as we've gone through 10 episodes of Modern Commerce, we've hit on a lot of things. And there's a few things that we feel like have really kind of touched a chord with listeners. And as we posted clips on TikTok and other social channels, we've gotten a lot of feedback around a few areas. And we haven't had a chance to, you know, kind of get into some of the details as much as we'd like on those topics. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to call this the Ecom Top 5, maybe Top 6 if we have time. We'll see. So I think, this, I think this is a good representation of things that we've learned over our careers and a lot of the core values that we believe at Remy. If you're listening and you're a company owner or you're just a marketer, we think these are things that are super important to be thinking about. So anything you guys want to add before we get into it? I just want to say that um, there is nothing on this podcast that's going to be very revelatory. We're going to go, ooh, that is something I've never thought of before. That also doesn't mean that uh, you're probably hitting on all cylinders with these things. Mm. So Sometimes it's important to go back to the basics. Yeah. And Doug's always downplaying his insights like that. So there's some stuff in here, I'm sure. We'll raise your eyebrows. I think the other thing too, as a preface, is that all of this is assuming that people have some sort of product market fit. Sure. You have to have a great product for any of this to bear any results. All right. So I'm going to get into it. I'm going to cue this up and then I'm just going to, I'm going to kick it over, kick the ball over the fence and we'll see, see where we go from there. But this topic has really struck a chord. I'm going to give a shout out to Brent. He mentioned this for about one minute on one of our podcasts. And then he posted on his TikTok and that TikTok now has 250,000 views. So it definitely struck a chord. And the topic is use landing pages for your ad campaigns. I have kind of coined this internally. I, at least I'm going to pretend like I did is the common thread theory. And I also may have borrowed that from another friend in the space. If you know who that is, that's a little Easter egg. But so what this means is basically when you run an ad or you run some kind of nurture campaign for your customer base, what you say in that ad should match where you send them on the website. And these web pages are often called landing pages. So 
I just want to cue this up with that video in mind, you talking about, you know, your experience at Adobe doing landing pages and how kind of a big company thinks about this and maybe some things that smaller companies can take from that to improve performance. But just let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about your background at Adobe and what, what your role was. So I was hired to help them convert their pages at a higher rate. And it was pretty nebulous when I started, but basically where we ended up was, you know, at that time, I think Adobe had 80 different products. And for the most part, all of the ad buying, which happened across 30 different people at that time. So there were 30 people buying ads and they were all driving to like one page, essentially. We started kind of thinking, hey, if we're spending... $50 million a month on ads or whatever the number was at that point, maybe we should put a little more focus into where we send them. And so I ended up spinning up all of the technological infrastructure to do that and then running the strategy on just like what we did, um, you know, in terms of do we have different pages for every campaign? Do we what tests do we run to try and increase conversion, all of that sort of experience. And basically, you know, where, where we ended up was, um, you know, we, we had a, basically a, a very dynamic set of templates that we could swap whatever we wanted, like whatever content blocks we wanted in and out with different headlines, different, colors, um, different layouts. We could include forms. We could hide the forms. All the different things that you'd ever want to test were built into this very dynamic page structure. And behind the scenes, you know, I had to do a lot of custom programming and coding. And the the underlying infrastructure was basically what you'd kind of expect from like a, a, a web application instead of like a a website, if that makes sense. Um, And I think over time, how Adobe kind of started to think about this was that, you know, if I could increase the conversion rate by even 0.2%, it was worth millions and millions of dollars. So Mm -hmm. we invested more and more, uh, you know, time and and ultimately people into this as it started to, to bear fruits. So when you started like 80 products all going kind of to the same place, how many, give us a sense of scale, like how many landing pages was a company like Adobe using? Well, they were just sending to the the product pages that they already mm-hmm. had. So there was, you know, 80 different pages basically. And then after running these tests, what did that look like? Basically, there was a different version of a page for every campaign. So there was thousands of pages. But it was really one kind of core infrastructure that created dynamic pages um, without us having to go, you know, actually copy and paste code and build new ones every time. So, Doug, you um, you ran marketing for a multi-billion dollar company called Vivint before we started Remy. And landing pages were definitely a core part of our acquisition strategy. How do you think about landing pages when it comes to to add. I think the thing for me that um, maybe is a little bit different than 
the way most people think about it, is I view the landing page as part of the campaign, not as a disparate part um, that is disconnected. And I think most people, like we were out, we were on the um, on the phone with a brand last week that we really respect and like, and has talk about an amazing product. They have an amazing product, and I was on with their head of digital marketing, um, who said their ad buyer was quote vehemently opposed to sending any traffic, paid traffic anywhere else but the homepage. And his logic was that even if you started them on a landing page, they would eventually, most people would eventually navigate back to the homepage anyway. Well, if you deconstruct that, like at a core level, why, instead of saying they're going to go to the homepage anyway, how about we ask a different question? Why are they going to the homepage? Uh, (laughs) And so I think I view a landing page as a way to continue to tweak your storytelling in such a way where why would anyone ever need to go anywhere else but the place you're trying to get them to buy from? And that is what I view as a landing page is a way to tell the story. And depending on your ad unit that you're driving from, the story is going to be different. And ultimately, you kind of end up in the same place, but you have to take different steps to get there. And so I view it as a critical part um, of the creative process of storytelling. So to kind of, to kind of, I guess, put a bow on that, if you are um, driving people to your homepage, I think the question you have to ask yourself, and maybe you should sit in front of a kid or somebody else that doesn't have any idea about how your product works, and just watch how they learn about your brand. I just have a very hard time believing that if you're talking about a specific product or a specific feature of a product in an ad to get them to drive into your website, that then resetting them back from to scratch and making them go research and find is an amount of it's it's an amount of labor you're putting on your buyer that there's just no way it's going to yield better results than if you you really get serious about building the entire creative funnel, including the landing page, to be a one cohesive story. I, I think there's something going on here too, uh, mentioning this this brand where they would only send to the website. There are so many marketers that run tests and experiments and then base their whole career and every other decision they make off of one experiment they run. And I've I've gone on this rant before, but I think that almost every time you run a test through, you know, a CRO or A B testing tool you're actually getting a lot more misleading results than you think. It's impossible to separate out all the variables that go into why you got certain results. And people, you know, get these these results that seem counterintuitive a lot of times. And I think it causes them to overthink this stuff. We can all sit back and say, well, of course, if you click an ad, I would want to see the same thing that I clicked on. But I guarantee you that if we, you know, were to dig into this with this marketer, you know, they would explain that they ran some tests and saw a counter to that. And so that's why they do it. And I just think that people at the end of the day are being led astray by these tools. And it's just causing people to overthink this way too much instead of just employing basic human empathy. Hmm. We're going to get into the, the testing a little bit more 
But that's a really great point. I think oftentimes people overcomplicate and aren't focusing on, you know, the 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 few things that really matter. So the sec I'm gonna just move on here um to the next the next topic that we want to talk about. And this is page load speed. Um so there's a lot of content online that you guys can go check out about this. How fast your page loads, you might not think has that big of an impact on customers, but there's a ton of data that suggests that that is not the case. And citing some data from Shopify and their ultimate guide to site speed, just a couple facts here. 79% of customers uh, dissatisfied with site speed won't come back. It's a lot. Um, and 57% of shoppers have left a slow site to buy from your competitor. Another fact that it, you know, depending on the size of your brand, you can just scale this, but for large brands, um, poor browsing experiences can cost them up to $100,000 per hour because customers are just bouncing off their website. So, you know, I think this is something where people kind of believe this is like this this is one of those things that makes sense like like you said earlier Doug like oh if we told people that the ad should match the landing page that makes sense but and you tell people that their site needs to be fast that also makes sense but it doesn't seem like um it doesn't seem to me in the conversations that I've been around with customers that they believe the data and so we were talking with a, a customer one time and um, they're, we, they're like, yeah, site speed's super important. We just did a whole bunch of stuff to optimize for that. We redid all of our images, et cetera, and we were able to knock it down by quite a bit. But, you know, some of these speed tools, speed tools, Google and others, they'd probably suggest otherwise that our site is not as fast, but we think it is fast. So just talk about the data, Brant. Should, should website owners think about this specific thing? And what are some of the things um, that they can use to, first of all, just like set a baseline on what, how fast their site is and, um, and how to tackle it? I get the sentiment a, a little bit, there's a certain degree of not wanting to over-index too much on the the scoring, like if you go from Google, they have a score called a lighthouse score. You can actually measure it in, in any Chrome browser on your computer, go to any website and there's a tab you can pull up where you can get a score across six different measures that basically give you a, an indication of um, performance. Not all of it is related to page load time. I would say probably, um, you know, only about half of the, the the data that comes back is related to, to page load. And so I think you can get a bad overall Google Lighthouse score and still have something that loads fast. So there are people that, um, you know, just kind of ignore the scoring altogether. I think one thing that they're ignoring with that is that Google is taking this into account more and more in how they rank your site in SEO results. Um, and we saw that play out at Podium with various things that, you know, didn't seem obvious. Podium helped people get reviews for their local businesses. And the more reviews they got, the more their SEO improved, which seemed, you know, to be something that was not obvious then. But I, I, I bring that up just kind of as an aside. Um, 
I think another reason brands are maybe hesitant is it's kind of like when people tell you diet advice, it's like, yeah, well, you know, I know I need to exercise every day and I know I need to, um, you know, change my diet and eat healthy, but it's just a lot of work and it's a lot of diligent work. And the reality is for a Shopify owner to actually make tangible impact on this, it's probably not realistic that they could do it on their own. And so they just kind of have to weigh the reality is this worth paying a hundred thousand dollars for someone to do like a massive site redesign or audit or whatever, and make my site faster. And that might still only lead to them shaving off one and a half seconds of five or whatever. Are there though, some things, just some, you know, there's the kind of the 80, 20 principle, most of the things that are causing a problem for you, whether that's your diet or your website speed or whatever can be often you can take care of a lot of that with a few things. Are there just a couple things people can think about um, that you might be able to do on your own or with a, a small investment on the site? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ones that are just sort of like real low-hanging fruit. Um, every once in a while, we'll still come across a site that does unoptimized images. There's enough websites nowadays where you can type like free image optimizer and just dump your JPEG in before you upload it into Shopify. Stuff like that is just sort of, um, you know, shooting yourself in the foot if you're not doing. So if you go to a site and you have a four megabyte image, that's your fancy background that loads in right away. That's, that's going to tank your load just single handedly. I think the other, the other body of work has to do with the plugins you install. The reality is most of the popular plugins for Shopify specifically are coded in a way that's not very optimized. Um, there's some real, real bad offenders. Um, Yapo is probably one of the most heavy pieces of JavaScript you can install on your website as a tangible example. So they have APIs and they have ways that you can, you know, have like a smaller uh, load on your site, but that's kind of where you get into the custom development work. So it kind of becomes an exercise yep. of trade-offs uh, and and really asking yourself, hey, do I want this plugin that pulls in my social feed or do I need to use Yotpo or is there some other way I can accomplish those things? And sometimes you have to choose to install the plugin, um, probably more often than not, but it's always worth kind of having that debate internally with do I need this and is it going to improve my customer's experience and is it worth slowing down my website in order to do that? Love the advice on images. That probably, depending on the, side of, the size of your site, could take you a day or so to go replace everything if you're a small brand owner. If you're larger, it might be a little bit bigger of a, a process. Can I just add one thing here? I think it's super funny that um, and ironic that Shopify has the ultimate guide to site speed. Considering... Um, Essentially, they've built a platform where it's open, um, and so there really aren't any regulations as far as like there's no gatekeeping as far as what a what you know what type of performance a plugin would have to have in order to get into the store and drive site speed. And so, if I were a brand owner, this is what I would be um, thinking every single time I was about to put a new plugin in, into my website. Okay. First, 
okay, this is going to drive X, Y, and Z productivity for us. Um, that is positive. Fantastic. You must take into account, in, in addition, how much JavaScript is this plugin or this app going to add to my website that's going to drag my site speed? It's not a mat. It is not if. It is about how much, and you have to take that into account. And so, I would be pushing my technical team to give me those answers up front as to what this is going to do to site speed. Because if you as a brand owner are not thinking through that side of it, which are probably not natural, the the things you're thinking about, you're just trying to drive productivity. Uh, you're probably you may be just equaling out performance. You may get, you know, the benefits of this stuff over here, but then if it's dragging your site speed by a half a second or a third of a second or whatever it's going to drag it, mm -hmm. you might be losing um, incremental conversions there as well. So just something to think about. Yeah. And and I think just for some additional context there, Shopify does have an approval process and speed is a part of it. I think the bar is pretty low from what I've seen. Um, and, and then if you just take the fact that your average store has 30, 40, 50 plugins installed, they could all individually yep. have okay performance, but it compounds on top mm -hmm. of each other. And the, the real hard part about this that's hard to solve without development work is you actually have a fair amount of control in the browser as a developer of when to load what. And if you want the best score and the best experience, you actually have to make pretty conscious decisions about when you load in certain scripts. So for example, I don't necessarily need Google Analytics to load all of its scripts first. Those can wait. There's other things I'd rather have load in first. And so I can actually set this order in place and have you know ultimately a better customer experience. That's just not something that you're realistically gonna be able to do out of the box. Um, without a developer. Also, yeah. another great question to ask your development team. What is the order that our scripts are loading on our website? Uh, mm. What do you think the average answer to that question is going to be, Brant? I don't know. Yeah, I, I I mean, I don't know that they would necessarily have it memorized because there's a lot. But yeah, they, they it's probably not something they've spent time optimizing for, if I had to guess. Well, a lot to unpack there. Um and we're going to move on. I'm going to move right on to the next topic, though. Let's I, do it. Some good insights there. Know your errors. We talked about this article. 55% of consumers have experienced a technical issue when making a purchase. So this doesn't necessarily mean the site's slow and it eventually loads. This means there's actually a problem that prevents your customer from making the purchase. An additional fact from that article, 75% of those customers said they didn't complete an online purchase if they had suffered from some kind of glitch. What are the biggest uh, perpetrators here for errors, Brent? It's kind of the same thing we've just been talking through, like plugins are, are real tricky. You kind of have to think about every plugin as its own separate you know, isolated code base, its own ecosystem, its own set of decisions. And it, they're all competing for the same set of resources on your browser. And there are times when, you know, there are plugins that just don't play nicely with each other based on those resources they're competing for. Um, I think the other, the other area that's tricky is across browsers and browser configurations, 
it is genuinely hard to test all of those things, even if you are trying. And so you might have something that works well on, let's just say, um, uh, desktop Chrome, but mobile Safari has its own way of implementing that code that you have put in place. And, you know, one, one like tangible example here, if you do anything with video, you're not allowed to autoplay video with the sound on, on mobile browsers. The, the browser will actually crash. But you wouldn't necessarily see that if you were testing just on like a, a desktop browser. Um, and this applies to all kinds of other things. It's just kind of one example that we've faced with our product. But it's, um, you know, I, th I think in the end, you kind of have to have some way to, to keep an eye on all of this stuff. So how do you do that? Um, what are some tools people could use? Um, and like, how is it? Is it something a, a brand owner can monitor and install themselves? Yeah, I think to get it set up well, you're going to have to have technical help. Um, I know, you know, we've we've talked about Sentry as as something to help with this in the past. Like they have some kind of integration into to Shopify. Um, essentially what that's going to do for you if you just click an integration button is they're going to take the best guess of where to basically place these nets to catch errors that'll, you know, fall out of certain parts of your app. And they just, it's, it's a guess. If you really want to be sure that you have like full coverage is kind of like a developer -y term, but if you want to have full coverage over your app with error tracking, then you do kind of have to have someone to go in and, um, you know, help out. But I think certainly starting with one of the out of the box integrations is, is better than nothing. I've heard you say, if you have a form on your website, mm -hmm. if you have a checkout or a cart, you have to use yep. application monitoring because it's way more surprising than you would think the type, the amount of errors that are happening on your website. So even if there's a little bit of a cost to the service or to the implementation, um, considering, you know, those stats that we cited, it's probably worth it and will pay for itself short order. Another maybe non-obvious reason other than just like completely losing purchases, this affects your attribution quite a lot. So I think what happens probably the most often, and I can see it on most Shopify sites that I visit, I'll open up this console that kind of shows errors um, that, that get hidden away to the end user. But if you're a developer, you can go look at them. And almost every Shopify site you visit has some set of errors that are just kind of sitting there. And a lot of them are actually that the scripts aren't firing properly. And so if you have something like Facebook and your script, like a pixel tracking or whatever, and it's not firing properly, well, that's messing up your ad buying attribution. And Facebook doesn't know how to optimize the purchase data. And therefore you're probably pumping money into a campaign that's, you know, not being fully optimized. So stuff like that can happen there where it's just leading you down bad paths in terms of how you're spending your ad revenue. It's actually probably not even just can happen. It is happening. At some level it's happening and you just have to get your arms around whatever piece you can get your arms around and be okay with the stuff you can't control because I think this stuff can be overwhelming. Um, to think about, especially if you're a non-technical person. Yep. I'm going to just pull on the thre a thread that you mentioned just a second ago, and we're going to move into number four, which is designed for no mobile, not scaled for mobile. You mentioned 
if you're designing in a browser, you might not know that if sound plays on video, it's going to crash, crash your browser. Doug, I know you've managed teams of 10 or 20 designers. How do you think most designers, web designers, think about designing for mobile? How about you put a phone next to your 32-inch monitor that you're designing on and actually take a look at what you're designing um, for the device that you're designing it for? Because the vast majority of the traffic that is coming to that page um, is coming on the phone. And sometimes... I think even when you, tr when you scale it down on your monitor, you're not really getting the true experience of what it's like to see that on the device. And I will say 95% of designers would so much rather design on a screen, a 32-inch monitor, than they would on a phone. Or, for, or like They like designing for the phone, but not on a phone because it's more difficult. Um, but this goes back to, you know, introduce constraints into your environment and you're going to have better results. Uh, and don't just assume that the scaling mechanism that you're using is going to yield great results for mobile. It probably won't yield great results for mobile. And so usually doing the easy thing, which is designing one time on your monitor and having it scale for mobile is not going to be the thing that does that yields the best results. So what does that mean? So like, what are some actionable things? Well, one of the things that we've done is we actually started introducing performance KPIs into the measurement of our designers. So they weren't just trying to make something beautiful. They were trying to make something performant. Uh, and that worked really well. And even not even just um, measuring them, but showing them data and, and helping them understand uh, Hotjar and where things were breaking down on the website, those are things that you can do on a very daily, weekly basis in your meetings. Um, and you don't have to take a ton of time. And one person can prepare it, take 60 minutes to prep it, 30 minutes to present it. And the designers, if you get them engaged in the battle, um, they will do a better job and they will understand the problem um, because sometimes they don't even know what the problem is. You know, Something that comes to mind, when we worked together at Vivint a few years ago, we went through a major rebrand, and we completely redesigned the website, and we hired this really expensive, awesome, actually, agency to help design that, and everything looked amazing in Figma, and then it got handed over <laughs> to the dev team, and I remember the first time I opened One the website, of these I was like, is not like huh? the other. <laughs> So I'm sure you could rant on this forever, Brant, but how important is that? Like, how, do, how important is the technical ability and the devs you use versus the design? And how do those people need to work together? And how do you kind of fill that gap between design and, you know, actual engineering? This is going to vary depending on the size of company, but I think the ideal scenario, and I think you can pull this off even if you're somewhat small, you want to have a designer that's in-house or that at least is going to contract dedicated on your work for, you know, a certain amount of time and ideally have them work right next to or in tandem with the engineer. And then they work with, you know, a, a product manager, they work with the brand owner, whoever's kind of leading charge. Those three people have to be in constant communication. If you have a scenario where you go get a website 
you know, all designed up without any engineering input, um, you're going to run into what you, what you're talking about as, as a potential output. Um, and, a, and then I think the, the other piece is there's definitely, I think there's definitely tooling here that can help along the way. So Figma, for example, has a program called Figma mirror. You can install it on your iPhone. When I'm designing, I actually just leave it like my phone on and, and oftentimes I'll put like a few different sizes of phones next to me as well. So I'm like designing still on my nice monitor, but, um, I can see like how it ends up looking on the phone, like right away. And having that like iteration feedback loop is, is really kind of like is, is what's at the heart of this. Um, if you go back to the scenario of someone designing and then throwing it over a fence to an engineer, well, you've just had a month long cycle of designing before you get any feedback from the engineer. And that's a problem that needs to be like a daily thing. And what will often happen if you have those people in communication is that something will be designed and designers are actually real good at making things that are ridiculously hard to code. Well, the engineer is going to sit there and be like, Hey, um, if we make this one little adjustment, we actually will reduce the amount of time this takes to code by like 10, 20, 30 hours. And it's something that just wouldn't occur to a designer unless they happen to know how to code a little bit themselves. But one other thing too, I would add there, this is something we implemented at, um, a, at Podium where I, when I worked there as a, as a product lead, like we actually had this kind of trifecta of people. And the last piece that we were missing for a little bit was actually kind of the, the voice of the customer. And so if you have the ability to interview and talk with the customers and have those three groups involved in that, that's where you unlock, you know, all of these little details that you maybe not wouldn't have thought of in terms of how the decisions you make impact your customers. And I think that that this piece in regards to like an e-commerce website is not being done from what I've seen. That's a really good point. Um, I have personally been guilty and also very surprised. You know, you get so close to the product and the design and you're like, oh, of course this makes sense. This is like the best flow ever. I came up with it. Of course it is. And then you go throw it in front of 10 customers and eight of them are like, I don't get it. Or, you know, it's just very insightful. I think it's a balance between taking customer feedback and, um, you know, not just building a mishmash of everything every customer wants, but really taking that into account and, um, and testing the usability of your site and getting real feedback. Love it. Okay, we're going to go into number five. Don't overcomplicate testing and iteration. Brent, what's a CRO tool? Because I heard you talk about that, and I was like, is that a chief revenue officer? It's a conversion rate optimization tool. So some common examples would be um, Optimizely. Adobe has one called Target, I think is what it's called now. Um, Google has a free one called Google Site Optimizer. Stuff like that is typically what you'd use to do an A-B test or a multivariate test um, on your on your website. What do you think are some of the common traps of using those tools that you've seen? They're really convenient when you have a group of people that can't make decisions and don't have a vision. So you sit down and <laughs> you sit down 
in a meeting and it's like, okay, well, I think we should, um, you know, say this headline and then someone else has a strong disagreement and then it's like, well, let's test it. And that's fine. But I think what tends to happen is that people get addicted to these tools and they start running more and more tests. And what happens is you'll run a test and it might say like, okay, well, if we put this sub headline above the headline, maybe that'll increase the conversion. They run the test for two weeks. They get a 99% confidence score, which means that, you know, there's like statistical significance that this will continue out in the future. And they keep doing this over time and you end up with this weird page design of like all these cobbled together tests that don't end up fitting together cohesively that are based on, you know, this long history of testing. And what I found, I, I mentioned this in, in a TikTok I did, I actually started to be skeptical that these were like real results that I was getting when I was doing these tests. And so I started running the same test over and over and over. And it would be something like, okay, should I have the form on the left side or the right side? That was like, for some reason, a huge debate inside of Adobe. And, you know, people, you go around and talk to people and they're like, well, we did this test and we found that it was on the right side was the best. So I'd run the test and, you know, put it on the right side and the right side would outperform by 10%. Okay, that, that did work. Well, I just kicked the same test up again. No changes whatsoever. I just started a new campaign inside of our testing tool. Sure enough, the next two weeks, it would be the left side that would win. And then I wanted to get like like real conclusive data on this. And so I pushed out some of these tests, every single one of our landing pages across every geography, every product. And then I would rerun the tests and they would come back different every time. Not with, some, with statistical significance. With statistical, we're talking millions of page hits on each one of these. So like, I mean, it's as many page hits as you could possibly get. And it just basically led me to believe that most of these tools are kind of scams. And it's back to the, the concept of just overthinking this stuff. If you're looking at a page and you're like, hey, this looks kind of cluttered. There's like, three sub headlines above our main headline and we have like four call to action buttons because that's what the testing tool said. Just like, don't overthink this, go with your gut. Like if you look at the best, the way that the, the best companies make decisions around this, I can tell you that this is not how Google thinks. This is not how Facebook thinks, not how Pinterest thinks. They all, when they're trying to make sense of the value of their offerings, they employ a completely different strategy than um, this A-B testing strategy. And that's, it's probably a topic for another time. But, um, you know, I think that if you want to kind of take them as a cue, they should, you know, their, their reputation probably stands on their own. So if some of that stuff, like where the form is, doesn't seem to matter as much, um, what are some things that they could be testing? Like maybe headlines or like a specific piece of copy or a specific piece of creative? For me, when I'm trying to make sense of this now and since learning that, it's not that I won't run those tests, but what I'm typically trying to do is reduce the amount of tests running at once. If possible, I'm trying to just do one thing at a time. 
And I'm always kind of using the lens of how am I going to make this better or easier for a user? And I'm using the test results as kind of a way to keep myself in check. So if I, you know, if I run a test like, okay, I'm going to change the way this form works or the position and, you know, I see something like a 75% decrease. Well, that's, that's like a different and more obvious signal than what I'm talking about. Where people go wrong with this, just to clarify, is they'll see like a 5% lift or even a 20% lift off of making the form change or whatever, and then spread that yeah. as gospel truth across everything else that they do while they're running seven other tests at once yep. and not understanding how those affect what they're doing. I think we're going to make it to the bonus round, <laughs> and it's lucky for Doug. He looks like he's going to pass out over there. I'm going to wake Doug up over here. Here's the last one. You're going to kick it off. Use video, but it has to load fast. Doug, there's a lot of um, discussion that we have internally about video, especially short form video. Why is this important for brands to be thinking about this problem? I just don't know how you could live in 2022 and not think short form video is the answer. It's completely transformed the internet um, the last five years. It's been so destructive to Instagram and Facebook that we just spent the last two episodes of our podcast deconstructing how they are in a full-on crisis trying to figure out how to keep up mm -hmm. um, with the changes that are happening in short form. Th this is proving out for us personally, where if I was thinking, you know, prior to, to having video as a you know, uh, part of our tool belt. If I was thinking about how do we get leads for our company and get them in the most efficient way possible, um, you know, there's obviously like the the cold email strategy that's somewhat free, but beyond that, we would be running ads. Um, and to get the volume, the same exact volume of leads that, you know, we've started to get from putting video out, I think we would have had to spend $100,000. And so I just don't know. Yeah, I, th I think like Doug said, it's, it's hard to argue with the, the results that, you know, people are spending more time consuming yeah. it. And it's allowing a broader variety of people to, you know, get out there and talk about interests that maybe didn't used to be viable as like a whole category into themselves. But like Gary Vee kind of always goes on these rants about how, you know, he knows someone that is like their life's passion is selling jam, like raspberry jam or something, and they make 150K a year off of it. And I think that's actually like what you're seeing with a lot of D2C brands is that they can release like a really niche product like that. And if they layer in the content side properly, those same people that are buying it, you know, probably want to hear more about it and what, what goes into making it and all those kinds of things. Can you, just to circle back on, like, remove uh, all the biases of, about how a website is built today, how a website should work, what strip all that away. And just think about, as a storytelling medium, the difference between a book and a video. And what are the things that you get by reading a book and how long it takes to paint a picture inside of words? And then you compound that into photos. You get like a picture's worth a thousand words. Compound it again into video. So just, just from a storytelling perspective, 
That's all sales is. Sales is storytelling. And so you've got to move a customer through your story, help them understand how you're going to solve their problem, and you'll win the customer. Well, there is no better storytelling medium than video. And so if you, th if you think that video just shouldn't be on your website, I think that's coming from a place of bias because we're watching the power of short-form video transform the internet at such a rapid pace right now that um, the biggest and best technology companies in the world are having trouble keeping up. So why would that not apply to your business? Um, and the truth is it does, um, but your competitors are probably just as far behind as you are because the technology tools don't really exist in such a, in such a way for it to exist, which is why we're doing what we're doing at Remy. Um, um, and so it just ties back to the problem yeah. we're trying to solve. But it's because we believe so firmly in this problem. Yeah, I think as I've talked to our customers, it's not necessarily that they don't believe video is a powerful tool. If anything, though, I would see I would say they tend to skew um, more towards traditional branded video. You know, they're not leaning as much into the vertical video and the more organic style um, that is definitely obviously working right now. But they are afraid to put it on their website because going back to page load speed, it completely destroys page load speed. So we've been going at this for about 45 minutes, and we're not going to get into how some of the nuts and bolts of how to fix video on your website other than I'm going to tell our listeners to go to remylabs.xyz if you want to see a really cool, um, interesting take on what we think the future of commerce is and using short form video on your website. I think that's a wrap guys. Episode 10 is in the books. See ya. See ya.